Hi, this is Matthew, and Ian and I just wanted to add a note here, because as we record this, the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, are on strike, seeking fair compensation and working conditions from the studios that make enormous profits from the hard work of these talented professionals. Now, we're not members of the WGA or SAG-AFTRA, but we fully support these unions in their efforts to secure fair and appropriate contracts for their members, and we would not cross their picket lines. Our understanding of current union requests and guidelines is that attending movies, using streaming services, watching DVDs, is not considered to be against their strike, and that publishing reviews and criticism, as distinct from promotion, are not contrary to their goals or their strategies. So for now, we're continuing with the IMMP where we review movies. If the unions do make changes to their recommendations and requests, we will act accordingly. Our hope, of course, is that the strike will be resolved soon and under favorable terms. Just think of it. A seat in chaos, a smash and grab raid, and four million dollars through a traffic jam. Four million dollars. I think we could take that over, Roger. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Hello and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project Podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and I have once again made him watch a movie. This episode was a long time coming. <laughs> I should have, the moment I knew the theme of this summer, I should have seen this one coming. <laughs> of course we would watch this film. You showed me this film when I was 12. And I had a good reason to do Absolutely. so. Absolutely. <laughs> because when I showed this, this movie to you... I had just ordered a Mini Cooper. Yes. And I wanted to show you the reason. <laughs> the ma- one of the main reasons why I had just ordered a Mini Cooper. Yep. <laughs> and boy, did it work. Because you showed me the Italian job, and it was excellent. The 1969 original, The Italian Job. And yes, that's something to note. So many things. If you search up the title of this movie, you get the 2003 remake. So many things. And I don't want to spend time in this podcast episode talking about that 2003 remake, good or bad. Uh, If you want to, if if you're interested in us talking about that at some point, let us know. We'll have contact information at the end of the episode. But today, this episode, we're focused on on that 1969 classic, The Italian Job. Where small boxy minis perform a wild, wild heist. And I'm just going to get this out of the way early. This movie feels like a James Bond film on a budget. Maybe. It's, I guess so, but it's not like they wanted to make a James Bond movie, but couldn't afford to make a James Bond movie. It's about working class characters who want to do something big and dramatic and international exactly and it, yet have limited resources I'm, yeah i'm not saying it's it feels like they they aimed for something and missed no this feels like for every james bond out there there's 27 guys <laughs> pulling one of these in a world with just that same kind of like it's the same little bit of a tilt to our real world in terms of this actually getting like them actually getting away with this and doing this iced, it has that same suspension of disbelief kind of level. And its name notwithstanding, one of the keys to understanding this movie, if if you're just coming to it without any background, is just how incredibly English it is. This is aggressively English. It is also aggressive and English. It is all three. (laughs) And because of that, it is very beloved in England. Yes. It is considered one of the classic English movies. 
<sighs> and I can understand that because it that's kind of where it comes from, what its story is based on, and it leans into that so hard because so much of the movie is that cultural contrast between England and Italy. To some extent, there's a bit about class differences within England, but not nearly as much. But it definitely has that very proudly English attitude toward, towards what's happening. There's something about the way our main character glides through so many scenarios that fits that kind of style. He becomes this, you know, leading everyone along and you get pulled along with him. So let's lay out who these characters are and what the setup is. Our, our lead in this is played by Michael Caine. Yes. And it's Charlie Croker. Oh, yeah, he's our lead. I almost want to start where the movie starts, though. Oh, I don't blame you. I don't oh, blame you. Oh, that start is so good. So movies of this time would almost always have their full credits at the beginning of the movie. I believe that might have even been a requirement yeah. from some of the the, uh, the unions at the time. And that didn't really change for almost 10 years after this. And yet this is a movie that makes that worth watching. It does something with all of that time, at least if you like cars. Mm -hmm. oh, it's also awful if you like cars, <laughs> yeah, I will it, say that. It ends in a way that is terrible. Because the beginning of this movie is Rosano Brazzi in an orange Lamborghini driving through this beautiful road in the Alps. Mm -hmm. and I would watch two hours of that almost. And it's shot so well. The scenery is so beautiful. The car is so beautiful. And it, you do get shots, interior of the car shots of Bratzi just looking so incredibly cool. This is one of those shots where, you, you know, the cutting from inside the car to outside to it going past on a turn to the windshield view going around to the next turn in the Alps. I swear I've seen other movies reference this visually i am certain there's sections of the mountain scenes in the live action speed racer movie that are love letters to this opening i think you're absolutely right and i think you'd see that all through this movie there are so many sets and set pieces and stunts in from this movie that are referenced and given homages in so many movies that have been made since and so many tv shows it's, it reminds me a little bit of what you were saying about uh, uh, Fantastic Voyage, about how that is one of the most parodied things out there. Yes. Here, it's not parodies so much as, what if we made this look as cool as it did in 1969 for the Italian job? <laughs> and this wonderful, brilliant scene is immediately interrupted by a loud, explosive <laughs> crash. <laughs> yes, this is the last we see, in real time at least, of of Bratzi's character, of Roger Beckerman. But at least he's he is um he's killed with a certain degree of respect. Oh. Some people in certain lines of business in Italy uh just happened to have carelessly left a front end loader in the end of a tunnel that he was driving through. Good. And then used it to push his Lamborghini off the side of the mountain. Good thing all of their men can put their Tommy guns to the side and take their hats off in reverence, <laughs> and the convenient wreath they have can be tossed <laughs> into the river after him to give him a proper funeral moment. So yeah, Roger Beckerman had had done something to make the mafia unhappy. And in a little while, we learn why or what he had yeah. done. But not until we don't learn more details about what Beckerman was up to until we meet Michael Caine's character, Charlie Croker. And we meet him getting out of prison. Getting out of prison, but being really, really kind of happy about it. Like, and not in a, I'm getting to leave, but it's like, it's nice to be home from camp kind of way. That first shot of Michael Caine, where he's stepping out of his cell because it's his, his day to be released from prison. And this look that he has in his eyes, it's a very tight shot. And it's like... At one, at the same time, it's lupine. He looks kind of ferocious and feral and taking everything in in a nervous way. But then you also realize that it is looking for what's next. There's a certain manic joy to this look in these eyes. Absolutely. 
And then, yeah, he goes and he says his goodbye and he's, he's, uh, uh, leaving prison. He makes sure to say a polite goodbye to Mr. Bridger mm-hmm. played by Noel Coward, who we soon see is the, the, the prisoner who kind of runs this prison. Yeah. It's very fascinating that this is like in a lot of other heist films and a lot of other such, uh, Prison is this looming threat to our main protagonists because they're breaking the law. In this movie, failure, very clearly from the opening scenes, doesn't mean they're going to make it out alive. There's, a, there's another group that would stop them dead. Yes. Meanwhile, prison becomes the home base that's getting like radioed back to, (laughs) which is this wild little moment of inversion when like the concept of incarceration kind of loses all of its sting because (laughs) there's a bigger, different threat elsewhere. Right. You, um, Bridger has, has used his money and influence not to get out of prison, but to make prison a pleasant enough experience for him that, well, why would I go to the effort of getting out? And in the meantime, he can continue to run his criminal enterprises all over England while he's in prison. And if you displease Bridger, the fact that he's in prison will not hinder him in the least in making sure that you understand the depth of his displeasure. He has people to deal with that. Yeah, Bridger just happens to live here. His home is listed with, you know, a couple thousand room. Right. But Croker gets out of of prison. We see a little bit of the kind of life he's going back to in this a, a sequence of scenes that don't drive the plot, but they reveal so much about character and they reveal so much about this late 60s England setting. Yes. That that is the environment of these characters. I don't I wouldn't even if you say that they kind of keep the plot from moving, they never seem to slow things down to me. They're always interesting. It's a very good like session zero in a tabletop RPG. Establish all of your characters and who's playing what. Because he immediately is picked up in a stolen car. He is immediately getting a fresh suit from his tailor and using a bunch of code phrases. Or where he was and why he wasn't here. <laughs> uh, he's picking up a car that is also full of stashed money so that he has cash on hand. And all of these scenes also establish the fact that this is a movie with a sense of humor. Yes. We've got his girlfriend pr- picking him up from prison in a car that she just stole from the Pakistani ambassador. We've got all these cutting quips from his tailor and his shirt maker about how out of style everything he currently owns is. And this wonderful, largely improv scene with the guy in the garage, both about the car that he's picking up, and which is another nice car, and about the fact that, well, he's been in India shooting tigers because there's a bounty on tigers in India. Oh, yeah, I, you must have shot a lot of tigers. I used a machine gun <laughs> he, to explain why he has this giant wad of cash. And John Clive, who's in that scene as the garage manager, he's one of many English comedians who have roles in this movie and who bring something to it that lightens everything and makes it all just a little bit absurd, which works for this plot. Yes, this movie, it is a comedy movie, but it is, it still takes itself completely seriously. It doesn't imply it. it, It's a movie that will make you laugh, but it, it at every moment has its characters and its world just being this way. Yeah. That is a distinct difference. It's not an absurd movie. It seems like a very naturalistic portrayal of an absurd world in which these characters are navigating. And Croker is bequeathed by Beckerman the plans for the greatest heist in history, the biggest caper that has ever been pulled. So in between his his recovering of his previous stuff, which is all stashed here and there, and to be very honest, a a not insignificant amount, but a not glorified, I think, too very much 
late 60s, early 70s main character womanizing kind of character to establish him. He is slowly building and reviewing the plans for a massive next crime. And I don't think he had any plans of going right back to some big job in crime, but this plan that Beckerman has put together, we can see from the character's reactions to it. It is a work of art. It is so intricate and beautiful with such a big haul at the end of it. To these characters, it would be a crime not to do something with this plan and execute it in some way. Exactly. The, these are a bunch of musicians and their late friend wrote a symphony <laughs> that has yet to be played. And they need to literally get the band back together and do this. And this is where we see more of Beckerman because part of what he has left for, for Charlie are movies that he had made, these black and white films of Beckerman in Italy, showing him the locations that are going to be significant for this heist and the target of the heist. Four million dollars in gold bullion. Which, being delivered from the Chinese government to Italy to help pay for a fiat factory. And they have the schedule for these deliveries. They have the route for these deliveries. They know what the security is in this route. And Beckerman has figured out a way to steal $4 million in gold in the middle of a city. $4 million through a traffic jam. <laughs> So this plan, as we learn, they do a good job of piecing it together and we learn more and more about it, but it involves creating a traffic jam at just in, in all of, of Turin, just at the right time. By taking advantage of the new computer control system that is maintaining so much of Turin's lights and traffic. And undermining the, the TV monitoring system that's used to keep an eye on traffic and... When the, the delivery is stuck in this traffic jam, cut it off from the rest of traffic using some big trucks, make a move on it to grab the truck, tow it someplace where they can blow it open and grab the gold. It's, it's one of these things that it has to be done with just the right timing, and there has to be no hesitation once this plan is put into motion. And a lot of what we see in the movie is all the planning and practice for this as well as the putting the team together, getting the right backing to pay for the material that is going to be needed for this. And that's where Bridger comes in again. Because they need this backing, and no one else is accepting it. So Charlie Croker breaks back into jail in one of the most wild moments I've ever thought of. <laughs> like, wait a minute, if he could break in and then still leave, he could have just left. <laughs> Wait a minute. Well, I don't know. They probably would not allow him to be quite as well equipped as he could be from the outside. <laughs> Possibly not. But still, there's something there of like, he breaks in to interrupt uh, Mr. Becker in the bathroom to pitch him this idea directly. But it's one of those details that helps sell us on several important things about Charlie Croker. He is extremely competent at what he does in that he's able to do this. He has a sense of how to plan things and how to execute things. He's impulsive enough to actually do this. He doesn't necessarily think far enough ahead about the consequences or is very happy to risk some seriously bad consequences if there's something he wants that he, he has a chance to go after mm -hmm. because Mr. Bridger is not amused by this and wants nothing to do with Charlie Croker. And reports this incident to the governor of the prison and has his boys go and rough up uh, Croker for disturbing his evening. Mm hmm And then something changes Bridger's mind. <laughs> <laughs> because the character of Bridger, he's one of these criminals. He's an English mob figure who nevertheless sees himself as being extremely patriotic. He loves the queen, he loves the kingdom, and it's the fact that there's this balance of payments issue, and England is getting mixed up in the common market competitions, 
And now China is paying all this money to Italy so China can build a car factory. And he decides we need to do something about this. So he decides to let the to, to back these good English boys who are going to go and take this gold away from China and Italy, depending on how you look at it. Exactly. And this is where I think that the movie does one of the most fascinating things. It's something I don't see enough in heist films. This shows how rough it is to get it off the ground. What so many movies would turn into one montage, the Italian job fills its middle with the prep. And I love that. And one thing this achieves is it teases what's going to come next. Exactly. We don't see all of the all of the details about the heist until we're actually seeing it happen. But the prep that we see that Beckerman has done, and we get to know what his plan is around the computers and the television monitors, and seeing them practice these stunts with the cars that they're going to be driving. All of that teases what's going to happen later when we actually see them have to do it. Exactly. And how about those cars they're going to be driving, Matthew? Well, uh, let's see. There is a uh, a big heavy-duty Land Rover yes. that they need to tow the armored car away. There's a big motor coach. Yeah. Uh, there are some really nice cars that are their, their bug-out getaway cars. Yeah, really nice sports There's, cars. You know, yeah. Like a, two Jaguars and an Aston Martin. Oh, my they goodness. Are. Those things are beautiful. And there are three Mini Coopers. Yep. Three decked out with rally lights, modified Mini Coopers. Small, boxy, and just the right size to get out of this situation where they put it. Red, white, and blue Mini Coopers. And that's part of, that was very carefully chosen by the people who made this movie because they were such an iconic English car uh, especially for the 60s. They were first released in, uh, in 1959, and they had just taken England and a lot of the rest of Europe by storm. And these minis are, we see so much mini carnage earlier <laughs> as we watch them try to figure out how to tilt these things, how to jump them, how to do all sorts of stuff. And we see them going to town in the workshop to upgrade and modify these to make them work. It's time for everyone's favorite segment. Ian does the math. <laughs> oh, uh, never mind. Someone beat me to it, Dad. The movie makers did the math? No. The internet. Oh, of course. The internet did the math. I was here so excited to calculate for all of you fine listeners. They, were, they said that they were stealing, stealing $4 million of gold bullion. And I was so excited because they have that in three Mini Coopers. And I thought, oh, I can figure out how heavy that is. And then I check online and in the Wikipedia entry, people have already calculated the amount per troy ounce at the time, $38.69, and calculated out the... Uh, weight by based on the information from complete classic mini to realize that each mini only weighs 630 kilograms but is carrying about 1070 kilograms of gold each mini has to carry two uh passengers driver and spotter as well as one and a half times its own weight in gold <laughs> now those minis those early minis for their size and weight, were very powerful. Yes. This is why John Cooper looked at these and said, huh, I can make a rally car out of this. Mm -hmm. And did, and hence we get went from the Mini to the Mini Cooper model. So it's believable to me. I don't know if the math is completely going to work out, but it is believable that if you boost the engine... And if you really, really upgrade the rear suspension, especially, you could turn the Mini Coopers into something that could still be reasonably fast and carry that much gold. Absolutely. I will say, being disappointed I couldn't calculate the gold, I've been hunting 
for historical prices of lead <laughs> because there's one of my favorite lines in the entire movie where without a shred of irony one of the mechanics just looks at charlie and says we couldn't afford the gold yet so we're using lead charlie it's how they're testing the suspension <laughs> but it's like well, yeah you can't well, afford the if, gold you're stealing the gold if we could afford the, the gold, gold we wouldn't be doing all this <laughs> exactly there is that sense of earnest dunsehood on the part of some of these criminals who are part exactly. of the gang. It's part of the charm and part of what makes it funny. And if any of you fine listeners can ever find the price in 1968 per kilogram of gold of, of lead <laughs> in the UK for me, I will be a grateful person. I will do the math immediately. Oh, let us know if anybody knows that. And you mentioned that that wiki. Did I mention this is a beloved movie? Oh Every my detail of this movie has been analyzed and and examined and researched. Did you know, for example, that the Lamborghini that Brazzi is driving in the beginning of the movie that had chassis number three five eight six? This is how detailed this goes. Yes. This movie is so so well analyzed <laughs> because it's so it's a fine tuned machine in that sense. The same way they're tweaking these Mini Coopers to take the weight to be able to to maneuver in these tight spaces the way they are going to. They spend the entire middle of this movie tweaking and fine-tuning your expectations so that it can perform the heist at the end and make it perfectly smooth in the right, not smooth way. And this... This episode of the IWMP, of course, this is continuing our car theme for this uh, summer. We've looked at the Gumball Rally. We've looked at Smokey and the Bandit. Had to include this in, in car movies. Maybe my favorite car movie. Oh, yeah. With the Gumball Rally, a very close second. But it's also a very different kind of car movie. It's, it's a car movie by accident, almost. It, you could have made a movie that's almost as good that involves these characters in this kind of a heist and not have it involve these iconic cars and things and still have it be pretty good. Yeah. When you add the stunt driving and you add these particular cars, that just pushes it over the top and it becomes amazing, especially if you're somebody who likes cars. The fact that this setup is so smoothly done that you get you you swap out the year for an, another year later on, you swap out the MacGuffin of the gold with something smaller. And you tell me that you're doing this with BMX bike team. And I'm like, okay, this movie still works. The, the, the way this, like the structure of this, I think fits. The fact that they use cars makes this a car movie, but it's really heist based in that sense. Are we sure that wasn't tried in the eighties with BMX bikes? I no longer am certain. <laughs> but the fact that you do add these cars and we see what they're doing with them, we get to see the stunt driving it's just a joy to watch. And there are parts of this movie. I'll sometimes just turn on the last act of this movie just to watch all of that. Oh, yeah. It's rare you get to see a heist movie where someone has to call their backer and apologetically ask for another set of test cars <laughs> because they keep crashing their first set. <laughs> and it has been, been spoken of as a, a car commercial. Not in the way that some other movies are. Yeah. Not even in the way that Smokey and the Bandit was a Trans Am commercial. You didn't have to go out of your way to sell Mini Coopers in 1969. This just celebrated the fact that they were cool and popular. If Smokey and the Bandit was trying to sell Smokey's police cruiser, it would fit more <laughs> with the amount of damage done at least at some points of that film, to the car in question, <laughs> you see some minis get absolutely destroyed in the, in the uh, prep and later. And so it's kind of odd to be able to say that a film that shows these getting obliterated is such a commercial for them, but it's true. And something else that the, all those prep scenes allow them to do is they begin to introduce us to more and more of the characters. One of the guys on the outside who's sort of running a lot of Bridger's interests, uh, Camp Freddy, yeah. who, who does a lot of the research to check and make sure that this plan might actually work 
uh, before Bridger really makes the decision that the, he'll go ahead and back it. Uh, and that's an interesting character. I mean, Camp had a very specific meaning in British slang. It did. Camp Freddy is, by all indications, a gay man who is a bit flamboyant in his style, but is very businesslike and is just the kind of guy that Bridger can rely on. And we see movies of him going to Italy and scoping out these locations and confirming what will or will not work and giving another set of previews to us as to what kind of driving is going to be necessary later. But seeing all of this preparation, not just with Charlie Croker and the team, but also on Bridger's end, I think adds a level of complexity that makes it fun. And we also get to see more of the kind of guys that are on Charlie Croker's team. And it ranges from East End tough guys to posh public school ne'er-do-wells based at least on their accents. Yeah, we need we need people good at driving. We need some some people who can actually like stand up in a fight a little bit better. We need we need a lot of the logistics of it. Like it's amazing to see a movie that can milk the logistics of the heist instead of just the intensity of the heist in that sense. And there is one other member of this team that we have to mention, partly because he is played by one of the other very well-known actors who are, is in this, uh, comedian Benny Hill. He plays Professor Peach, who is the computer expert who is going to help them disable the computerized traffic control system in Turin. They figure out a way to convince him to join their criminal enterprise, and that's where we see some more of Bridger and what makes him tick. It's that... Uh, He's the people guy. Yeah. Of Camp Freddy is saying, well, yeah, Professor Peach may be the best computer guy, but but what if he's not bent? To which Bridger's response is, Camp Freddy, everybody in the world is bent. And they find out what his weakness is and exploit it. And his weakness, it's played for laughs in 1969. He has an inordinate fondness for women with large figures. Mm-hmm. And that has gotten him into trouble. And they have arranged for companionship from some ladies that would be of Professor Peach's taste, and promised him that there are so many of these kind of women in Italy. Why don't you come with us and be part of this job? And that he, yeah. It doesn't play, I don't find it as amusing as audiences might have found it in 1969. But it, even, even if his little side things don't fit, the fact that they spend the time to show how to get him onto the team, because he's the one they show this longer scene of doing so, means that when you're introduced to every other character on the team, even for a moment, you get the feeling there's a tangent about getting them in on one of these heists that's almost akin to that. There's something, you know, everybody's bent. There's some reason everyone got into this. We happen to see a brand new person have to be added onto the team because they're dealing with some brand new tech. But it's interesting because that means you get to see the method of you know, the growth of this organization in that sense. That's a good point, though. I did get the impression that everybody else in Croker's crew were already criminals. They didn't have to go out of their way to persuade them to take part in a criminal enterprise, but maybe they're mistaken about that. And at very least, they might have been, they might have had a first one, a first job they worked. Oh, that's true. And this is kind of, this is, this is Professor Peach's first job. But it implies every single other one of them has gone through something getting them in on the first job like this. That's a good point. But it's time. They're on the boat. They're headed to Italy. And it immediately has a snag. Well, I love the fact that the ship that they're on is called Free Enterprise. Why do I get the impression that that is owned and was named by Mr. Bridger? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that is absolutely Mr. Bridger's boat. But things start to go bad for them very early on in, uh, in Italy because the people who were unhappy with uh, Beckerman are still there and they're still unhappy with anybody who might try to pursue Beckerman's plans. Quite the warm welcome. And so they run across the mafia. Yeah. And by warm, I mean a lot of men standing in the sun in black suits. And a currently revved up engine of a giant piece of construction equipment 
that is used to intimidate and get rid of everybody's nice, fancy bug-out cars. And they were kind of ready for this to some extent because Bridger had warned them. He had noticed in the background of the videos of the films that Camp Freddy had taken, this one guy who was always there and always paying attention to what Camp Freddy was up to. Yep. He knew and he warned Croker very sternly that you're up against the Mafia. And the Mafia boss they're up against is Altabani, played by Ralph Maloney. I'm probably mangling his name. But he gives this great air of stylish menace to this Mafia boss. He does. Everybody else may be in, in his army, might be in various stereotypical black suits, black ties, black hats, but the boss has style. Mm-hmm. He's got style, and he's got this, you know... This cat-like playfulness of just saying to get rid of someone's vehicle by pushing it, by crushing it, and then tossing it over the edge of the the roadway with a smile on his face. Like, hmm, nope, get rid of that one. And it's so hard to watch that scene, though, because as you say, it, it ends with the Mafia using, I think, that same front-end loader, destroying these two Jaguars in this Aston Martin. Do they just own that front end? <laughs> oh, I'm sure that they have a few uh, interests in the construction industry for which they'd have frequent use of that. Ah, that makes sense. <laughs> and we get so we get to see these beautiful looking cars just smashed and pushed off the cliff. It's so sad. Once again, this movie is oddly enough a car commercial in some ways, <laughs> but also not very car commercial like. <laughs> Now, if they were trying to sell front-end loaders, if we knew honestly, what brand that was. <laughs> honestly, that's one of the few vehicles we see go through a whole lot of stuff without problem. <laughs> that's true. Front, you know, the Italian job, you know, front-end loader. Hey. So this changes their plans in that they don't have these like emergency escape vehicles that they were going to have standing by. So Which better- also means that uh, Charlie's girlfriend, Lorna, does not have to stay in Italy because there's no car for her to drive. She was going to be one of those getaway drivers. So, uh... Hop on a plane, don't make a scene, get out of here. <laughs> Which luckily lets them be at the airport to see the gold bullion arrive via plane. Yes. So a good setup of showing us the MacGuffin early. And the mafia boss is still following them. He, he knows that they haven't left town. And we see the like where they are doing their final preparations. And it's like in this old abandoned or, or otherwise empty villa. Yeah. That they have found or rented for the time being. It's this great sort of sense of poverty decadence, living in this giant empty place. Yeah. Getting suited up and checking their maps and listening to the radio so they have information about police reports on the movements of the gold bullion, et cetera. There's that classic, like, the goons sitting around playing cards moment that you expect in a movie where our heroes bust in and stop them. And instead we get that moment when our lead bad guy who we're rooting for, cause he's a thief. Cause these are all <laughs> our heroes busts in and says, stop fooling around. We've got to move it. Yeah. We see what Charlie is like when he needs to ramrod a job. And we also get to see more conflict among the crew than we had seen before. And it makes sense. Tensions are rising as they get closer and closer to have to execute this clever, but nevertheless difficult and dangerous plan. And we see more bickering and more friction among the different kinds of personalities that are part of this crew. Mm-hmm. We've two of, two of the guys who are going to be in the mini Coopers arguing about, you know, who gets to sit where and I get motion sickness. Well, I have asthma. It's, it's really, really humanizing in an odd and interesting way where everyone gets this moment of like, you get to see the tensions. They don't keep their cool, but they don't lose the focus and fail the plan. And it increases tension for me watching it because it makes it clear it doesn't matter how good this plan is. There is a lot that could go wrong, and that begins with the people who are executing it. Mm-hmm. But actually, before that, the night before is when the plan really begins. Yes. Because they have to plant the 
the program in the Turin Traffic Control Computer Center that's going to cause their, their traffic jam the next day. So they cause a temporary power outage, which allows them to the uh, some others to sneak in to the computer center. And swap a magnetic tape. So I'm not entirely sure why they needed Professor Peach, because we saw earlier that Beckerman already had the tape with the computer program that needed to be swapped in. Now, maybe Peach had to check that and test it and update it for the latest version of the Turin computer some, uh, system or something, or maybe they just needed somebody who they knew would find the right tape drive to yeah. slap this into. I'm I'm betting it's more the second, but absolutely, there's a bit of an odd thing there. Like there, there feels like there's a missing step of the oh no, there's something wrong with the program. Get us a programmer. It, although it's also 1969, so oh, part of this involves a computer. We'd better get a computer expert, one of the priesthood of computer people. Aha! Uh-huh. Who then goes on to create Colossus, the Forbin Project. <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm just imagining someone being able to pull a heist on Colossus using a couple of Mini Coopers. I would, I would watch that film in a heartbeat. Oh my goodness. Remember, lads, this robot can mix a martini. Be careful out there. So at just the right time, this computer program kicks in and traffic in Torino grinds to a halt. And meanwhile, Croker has found some assistance to spread these little jamming devices around town, any place where there's one of these monitoring TV cameras. And one of the reasons he has no trouble getting someone to assist with that is there happens to be a big England versus Italy football match in Turin on that very day. So the fact that there's this bunch of English guys in town with weird vehicles is not raising as many eyebrows as it might have otherwise. And they found some friendly English folks to find the TV cameras and drop these uh, jammers in place. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the, the, the hardcore part of the heist. We do. Which is fast and brutal in many ways. Very brutal. And they've got a car transporter that's cutting off the armored car. They've got a the Land Rover full of guys with axe handles to take out the motorcycle policemen. And they they beat up a lot of people and drag the armored car drivers out and try to take the armored car. They fight off a police water gun tank. <laughs> yes. It it's, is a wild fight. It's it's a pretty well-shot action scene in that it gives you this sense of frenetic confusion and then the anxiety that can bring, that being in the middle of this kind of scene would likely create. You get a sense of that as the audience. And yet at the same time, it's choreographed and shot and edited well so that you're never really in doubt as to who's where and what's happening. It's never confusing. It's just anxiety-creating. Mm-hmm. In the way that it should be. And it works, but it's very, very close to not working. Yes. But they get this uh, this armored car in to their little safe area that they've kind of hollowed out. Yeah, a little courtyard with a big or a little interior space, but it's got a big door that they can bar. So this is where we get a little bit of a ticking clock uh, scene where they've only got a certain amount of time before the police can break through this door. And in that time, they have to blow the doors off of the armored car and get all the gold loaded into the Mini Coopers. And then get every single one of their guys either into their Mini or into the van and out of the outfits they were using to just rob everybody. And speaking of uh, blowing the doors off of the the armored car, we didn't mention one of the most well-known and classic bits from all the prep scenes, which is when they're figuring out the explosives they need to use to blow the doors off the car. And use too much. <laughs> Anyone here like Mythbusters? Raise his hand. It looks like a scene out of that in the best way. <laughs> and the line, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. 
Absolutely. I gather that is a line that is repeated ad infinitum in England. Oh, I take it that that's the case. It's it's delivered with such intensity and pointed focus. <laughs> but apparently they figured it out because it works during the heist, and they're able to get the gold loaded in with a few tense moments as the police are trying to break down this door, as the police use the car transporter that the criminals had used to try to break down the door, yet they manage to get the minis loaded, and... Off they go. Off they go. And I like the fact that the getaway van for the folks who are not in the Mini Coopers is a tour van for football fans with all this. They they don't try to make it stealthy. They just make it look like something full of football posters and drunken football fans. And it's kind of funny because it's it looks on the outside like an absolute party van, and it's inside a bunch of guys nervous out of their minds <laughs> like coming down off of the adrenaline high and terrified that this isn't going to work <laughs> which leads to another terrific line oh look happy you stupid bastards we won didn't we but we've come to the moment the most famous scenes of this film i think this begins the part of the film that Decades later, sold at least one Mini Cooper to somebody living in Colorado. Yep. Because Because we get to see these three Mini Coopers make their way out of Torino, the traffic jam notwithstanding. And that means going through all sorts of places, cars are not supposed to go. (laughs) We see them drive... Down staircases. We see them drive through courtyard malls. We see them drive onto the roofs of buildings and down and across and jumps. It is wild. It it starts to make no sense where they're going place to place to some extent. I start losing the track of like why some of these detours, but they 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 have a lot of fun. They get to a spot, they do something clever, the police arrive, the police are confounded, they escape the spot. Back and forth little moments. I don't know that you could really trace a getaway route from where they were, the piazza that they were in, to where they need to get to, to to escape. That actually includes all of the different places that they drive to and all the different tricks they have to pull. It is kind of a forced montage of cool car tricks. There are some times I watch this movie that I get a little impatient with that. Most of the time, though, I just enjoy the scenes for what they are, which is a lot of cool driving as they uh, they go through museums, they go down church steps, they go through 12-foot sewer tunnels. The church step one is one of my favorite. <laughs> as you watch a, a, a wedding procession coming out of the church and down the long steps, and in front of them, on the diagonals, goes Mini Cooper, Mini Cooper, Mini Cooper, police car, poli- <laughs> policeman on motorcycle. And they all just kind of keep moving, and it's this perfect missing each other by just enough kind of moment, where where this perfect cross back and forth moment doesn't interrupt a thing. I love that scene. A lot of those shots, they really are well choreographed, and the driving is done very well. It it might seem as if a lot of the driving isn't really super impressive stunt driving. If you've seen all the movies that came in the decades that followed this, but there's a certain character to the stunt driving in this movie that it doesn't have to be everything is a flashy dangerous stunt. There are a few of those like the jump from one building to the next, but it's more about the style. And the fact that they're driving in these three Mini Coopers and driving in convoy and weaving through traffic and being confusing by swapping with one another and changing position, that kind of team driving, it's a very different feel than a lot of car chases that you would see in movies. I can't think of any moment where there's one of those grand passing shots you i feel like you stay in motion more time yeah this has fixed cameras more yeah than the movies that were shot in you know 1976 and 77 yeah that we that we've watched the gumball rally and uh smoking the bandit some of that may be technology some of it is directing style but 
I kind of like that because there are parts of Smokey and the Bandit, or especially the Gumball Rally, where you get a sense that you're driving with them. In this movie, it's more like you're there in Turin, and it's like, what the heck is that going by? Yeah. It's a different sort of thrill. You kind of get that it interrupted my vacation, what just happened moment in the best way. Yeah, right. You wonder how many uh, how many home movies this uh, these Mini Coopers photobombed oh, yeah. on their way through Turin. And they make their escape. It is beautiful and grand, and it is tense the entire time. But they make it out through a, a sewer tunnel and all out onto the road to, headed towards Switzerland. And that's where the big motor coach comes in. Because by now, the police are absolutely looking for red, white, and blue Mini Coopers trying to get out of the city. So it's time to do the thing. It's time to do the loading while on the road stunt. They've hollowed out this big bus, built uh, some ramps they can deploy out the back, and these minis are just going to drive right into the the bus, gold and all. And then we get the tense moment of trying to line up and get them on. It's the classic scene. And then they do something I can't believe they did. They got to get rid of the minis. Dad? Oh, they're such painful scenes. This is such a painful set of scenes. They're driving through the Alps. All these hairpin turns and switchbacks. And they're timing it just right so that they can open the back doors of this motor coach and push the minis out while the bus is going around a bend so that the minis will tumble into the valley below and either explode or just be bashed to pieces on the way down. We got to get so excited. There was so much hype and buildup. We loved these the cars here. They did cool things. And then we watched them get destroyed. And it just, oh. Even after all they had been through, they still looked so cool when they were driven up into that, uh, that bus with the, the bonnet straps and the rally lights. And, and then we have to see them destroyed. It's so painful. It's a car movie. <laughs> oh. Oh, every time. I have I have seen this movie so many times. Not as many as you have, Dad, but we've watched it many times. Not just well before the podcast even existed. And it still hurts every it time. It really does. I will always remember them driving across the weir. <laughs> And not in a million pieces a few minutes later. Exactly. But now, they're on their way. It's them in a nice big empty van with a giant pile of gold bullion, and it's party time. On their way to Geneva, they've succeeded. We're not going to give away the ending of this movie, but I am going to say that it is a great ending. And I don't know that people were paying very much attention to what the Hayes Code, the movie production code, said about whether or not you're allowed to show crime paying off here. But this is a movie, the ending maybe complies with that, maybe doesn't. It's brilliant, brilliant at the end. And I, if you've not ever seen this film before... It's going to tip our hand about things just a moment from now. But there's a good reason why we will not spoil it for you. So, to resist the temptation to spoil it, maybe it is time to go to our final questions. I think so. Screen or no screen? Screen. Yes. Screen this film. Yes, uh, this, this is not a hard, uh, a hard decision. I first saw this movie. I was probably around 10 years old or so because my and I saw it because my dad was watching it on TV one Saturday night and I was just amazed. I was captivated by this movie. It's probably the first thing I remember being a like car movie. Maybe I'd watched some Speed Racer before this, but the driving just enthralled me. These weird little cars that I had never seen before enthralled me. So I'm not joking when 
in around 2001, and I see this magazine either article or ad showing me that there was a new Mini, and they were selling it in the United States. I knew I was going to have one of those at some point, and 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 I did. About five years later. Yep. And I remember this movie being something that when once you were doing that, you had to show me and it didn't. I like cars. I like minis. And we, we went to mini events and had so much fun with them. And this movie is tied into all of that. But it never got me interested in the cars. But I loved that setup. I loved that practice. I loved them tinkering with them to make them work. I loved the finding the car that fit just right kind of element. There's something about the design nature of this that I liked. And so that ring rung true for me and went into what I do now in my own future. So I can understand this, this movie has things that speak to people. And that was a fun time because back in 2004, you wanted to buy a Mini Cooper. You couldn't just go into a Mini Cooper dealership and buy one off the lot unless you were like really, really weirdly lucky because they were selling them faster than they could. It, keep them in inventory. So we had to order a mini and wait for them to build it over in Oxford, England. So it was fall of 2004. We placed an order for a 2005 Mini Cooper, which was neither white nor red nor blue. It was British Raisin Green. And then we had to wait months for them to build it. And there was this phone number you could call Give them your like production number and get the production status. And I remember you calling that number almost every day. I remember it too, because my mom and dad would say, I said, status, funny. <laughs> you sounded vehicle, a little... Vehicle production status. <laughs> I was trying to make sure that robot understood me, but it was fun to get to call it. <laughs> I loved calling that number. And then you got to tell me, oh, it's, it's uh, in final assembly or... Hey, Dad, now it's in the paint shop. Exactly. It was fun. Dad, they're bringing it to the boat. It's on the boat. That was fun. It it made that, and it heightened that anticipation, which was a lot of fun. But we made good use of that time, because in that time, in those months we were waiting, I showed you the Italian job. I think we also might have watched that 2003 movie of the same name. Absolutely. Something else we did? Yes, I wanted to to say, like, we've, we've mentioned that they did a remake. And we mentioned we're not going to tell you the ending. So as much as doing revive, reboot, and rest in peace is fun, it's going to be harder. But there is something we've no- we don't usually talk about, and it's something we did during that, uh, which is the side projects, the side merchandise, the other parts of it. And this came out way later, but I loved that game. The Italian job for PlayStation 1. <laughs> That was so much fun. That was by Rockstar Games, right? Yes. It is built on the Grand Theft Auto engine, if I remember correctly. And it was such a fun game. It It's a driving game, of course. And they do a clever job of breaking the movie down into little chunks and focusing on, if not the scenes from the movie, you get to drive almost every vehicle that's in the movie or at least every vehicle that anybody in Charlie Croker's gang winds up driving. And you have a little mission you have to complete. It starts with the Pakistani ambassador's car and you have to get to specific objectives and you have to avoid the police or you'll be nicked. And it progresses to eventually you're, you're driving the, the Land Rover, not to, I don't think you wind up towing the uh, the armored car anywhere, but you wind up using that to break somebody out of prison. They create scenes in some cases or, or scenarios so that you get a chance to drive these cars. But it has the right feel. Yeah. It has the right tone. You ever wanted to hear uh, uh, lines from Michael Caine bit crunched and played back on PlayStation 1? <laughs> you do, actually. It's so fun. You start up the thing and you just, you know. This car belongs to the Pakistani ambassador. And it's like, I don't care how many times I have to restart this level. It's fun to hear that. 
it's interesting to note that this PlayStation 1 game came out in 2001 when the new Mini was being released. So even though this uses the classic Minis, it was timed to kind of help bring awareness to the Mini brand, which was part of the fun, I guess. Absolutely. But it also says something that this movie had pull that far into its future. Yes. This movie became that kind of classic thing. And it's just such a fun game. It is. Not sure if we can answer our standard question. Well, I mean, I guess we have to at least address it. Yeah. And it's revive, reboot, or rest in peace. I think it's a rest in peace. It is. It's been rebooted in the form of that remake in 2003. And to speak very briefly, I guess, about that movie, there's nothing wrong with that movie. It's an enjoyable movie. It doesn't have the character and the power of the original. It's got bigger stars, maybe, at least at the time. It's got a bigger budget, but it doesn't have the heart that the original does. Yeah, it's it's a different kind of beast. So I have to say, I guess I would say rest in peace, acknowledging that there's been a reboot that was passable. There has been the video game you could almost call a revival, and I love that. So it's a hard one to answer, but overall, you've got to say, rest in peace. This is what it is. Doesn't have to be extended. Doesn't have to be changed, certainly. It can just be appreciated. It's a rest in peace, but it's a, this movie is going to still have legacy and descendants in that sense. There's, there's been plenty, apparently, of, of TV and other little references to it in places. There have been a couple of ideas of doing, like, a series. And other stories, possibly of Croker's team and things like that. That's interesting, because I, I don't think I'm looking for that, and I don't know that that would work. Because Croker is not the same kind of character as the Bandit. Yeah. Croker is not somebody who is a legend in his own time and is beloved across a large countryside and is always going to be able to find both adversaries and assistance wherever he goes croker is very much a a working working class criminal you could almost make a better spin-off focusing on mr bridger sending a different team to do a different job somewhere and having like you know, references to the side but he's more of a hub than croker is but croker is the lead so that's kind of where the focus lands that's a fair point because he is such a big presence even for the the fewer scenes that he's got and i don't know that we mentioned the fact that it's noel coward who plays mr bridger who gives this supercilious self-important way too refined and yet clearly brutal and ruthless air it's this combination of traits that makes that character funny and scary at the same time yeah it's like if you wanted to see a criminal version of the tv show the avengers it would be with him <laughs> sending out people to do things. Yes, yes. It's like uh, it's like Steed gone horribly wrong. Exactly. For all we know, they're rivals. <laughs> so yeah, I'd say this is a movie that we would recommend to people, but now let it rest in peace. Let it be what it is. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a good uh, cap to the... Uh, road trip summer that we've had here i think so i think we've we've made it back from the road trip and it's been a wonderful time <laughs> and uh we will be back with more of the intermillennium media project including a very special episode next time yes because we are once again going to be presenting the immp podcast live at nondescon in uh, colorado 8 p.m mountain time on Friday, September 1st. So if you're going to be in Colorado, certainly if you're going to be in Nondescon, come and uh, join the show. Yeah, come see us in person. Come join the recording and hear our fun takes on the next thing I had to, I had to watch. I'd... Well, it is an anime convention that we're going to. Okay. So I can give away what, we're, what we've been watching. Yes. Star Blazers. Oh, boy. Not Space Battleship Yamato. 
We are specifically talking the extremely Americanized version that I discovered on local TV in the late 70s, Star Blazers. Imagine if you somehow made this more 70s. <laughs> so we hope some of you will be able to join us for that. But of course, that episode will be also on the podcast feed a little while uh, after that. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me. I'm garaged at bymatthewporter.com, and that's where you will find links to anything I'm doing online, including my YouTube channel where I review every trip that I make to the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema, both the movies and the food. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found as item crafting most places, be that on itemcrafting.com, itemcrafting live on Twitch, and most other locations. Look for me as item crafting. And you'll find the podcast at immproject.com. If you want more of the IMMP, you will find all of our back episodes there. If you want to support the IMMP, you'll find our shop. You'll also find a link to our Patreon, where you can support us and also get more audio content. And you will find a link to our Discord and our contact page if you want to get in touch with us. And please do. And another way to get in touch with us is to send honest-to-goodness real-live physical mail to the Intermillennium Media Project at P.O. Box 271167, Littleton, Colorado, 80127. Stolen gold bullion is not suggested, but very fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for listening. We appreciate it. We hope you'll be back with us soon. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>